0: Hello, Rejects. I'm Brent. And I'm Dave. Welcome back to Rejected Central and to today's episode, Rejecting the Closed Mind. A few days ago, after receiving an invitation to do this thing with this person that involved a mix of poetry, reading in a garden, and prayer, I found myself saying no. It felt a little too woo-woo for me. (laughs) And I actually said that out loud. Now, this is the first time I've ever used the term (laughs) woo-woo, But I have to admit that the spirit of it has long been with me. I resist, often, what I perceive to be too touchy-feely or strange, and honestly, I think it's great when other people do that kind of thing, but when it comes to doing it myself, no, a little too out there, if you know what I mean. I don't consider myself to be closed-minded, but all right, if I'm honest, I guess in some ways I am. There
1: are things that I won't try. Well, thank goodness not everyone feels that way.
0: On today's episode, we're speaking with Anne Buckma, author of My Year of Living Spiritually from Woo Woo to Wonderful, One Woman's Secular Quest for a More Soulful Life. You can read her full bio online, and you should because it's super interesting, but I'm going to focus on a few of the words that I noticed right away on her website, and I thought they were perfect. So, she describes herself with these four words, scribe, seeker, speaker, storyteller. I like the scribe part because I have been known to put a few words together, and I think the rest of it, actually, and storyteller, is really, really universal. She's also fearless. She's done and enjoyed and processed the woo-woo and has the courage to talk about it.
1: And it's great to have you here. Welcome to Rejected Central.
2: Thanks so much for having me, Brent and Dave.
0: Oh, it's our pleasure, and it, I'm excited. I'm, I'm excited on a personal note, because having witnessed some of the genesis of this whole project of yours, the Year of Living Spiritual book, um, a little bit of a personal investment. So it's super exciting.
2: Yes, you were one of my early readers. I appreciate that. Oh,
0: well, again, my pleasure. It's always an honor to have that request.
1: Mm-hmm. And uh, we always ask our guests, of course, uh, if they have a rejection story to share.
2: Well, yeah, I was thinking about this because you sort of prepared me, and uh, of course, all of us have been rejected at some time or another. The most early rejection I remember, and I will never forget it, because in my 12-year-old or 13-year-old world, it was devastating, was going to a new school in grade 7 and having this group of girls that I made friends with fairly early. And I was a bit different. It was a very uh, religious school. My mother was divorced. Uh, single parent. My father had disappeared. I think I kind of stood out. I also wore pants on the first day, which was back in 1974, no-no in this school. And um, Incredible
0: that that kind of thing, we can even still talk about that as being in a our thing, life. right? I know.
2: I must sound ancient when I tell that. I'm 61, but that's the way it was at that school, John Calvin Christian School in Smithville.
0: You only have a few years on me, but I can say that The non-skirt thing was also frowned upon when I was being brought up through the Christian school system, too. Not a rule,
2: but... Well, this was a rule, and, you know, the the minister who taught us religion uh, was in that day when I had pants on, and he pointed me out in class and said, this isn't my rejection story, but he pointed me out in class and said, what, you want to be a boy? Uh, Anyway, one day (laughs) I showed up at school and Mm. I went to my group of girls and they literally in unison turned their backs toward me. Wow. I had no idea what I'd done. I felt completely devastated. I think I spent um, most of the afternoon in the washroom crying. Um, I still remember all their names um, and I have no idea why they did that, but I was just felt profoundly rejected. I stayed home from school sick for 3 days. I never told my mother. I was so ashamed. And I remember having my little New Testament Bible and praying to God, you know, to have these girls like me and God had better things to do. But um it was <laughs> truly devastating. Yeah. It, it was yeah. and, and what you know,
0: world are we in, right? Like I mean that it's so tribal and it's, it's it's very tribal. You know, you read about it in books like women talking and you hear about stories of very, very conservative and strict societies physically turning their back. I don't think I've ever actually met somebody outside of one of those societies who's had that happen. That's incredible. Well,
2: I do think there's a lot of bullying going on. And I think it's different between boys and girls, or at least it was in my day. With girls, this is called social aggression. Um, You know, I don't want a gender stereotype, but with boys, I mean, I rather would have been punched in the face than than have Hmm. this happen. Mm -hmm. Um, and it is social question. And years later, I wrote about it as I do with most things that happened in my life. I wrote about it for more magazine and I, um, interviewed a lot of experts and, you know, for a long time, I had a dis, I I love my female friends and it's so important for me to have female friends, but this stayed with me for many years and I had somewhat of a distrust or discomfort in groups of some women. Um, so that is my early rejection story. And, um, The happy ending is when I finally went back to school, there was another girl in class who was very unpopular and I wrote her a note and said, I have no friends and you don't seem to either. Would you like to be friends? And we were best pals for years. So I did take things into my own hands
0: silver lining or grace or something came out of that that you could latch onto in a positive way too mm-hmm. not that you want to minimize that kind of experience because that's incredible
2: i know it does sound a bit trivial but i can say in my world it was just just devastating oh and, to me
0: uh, it sounds horrible yeah. like the yeah. actual like sure you hear about people quote unquote shunning but that is an actual literal physical shunning that's Absolutely. just that's just and of wild. course
2: years later there would be a different kind of shunning when i when I left the church that I grew up in.
0: I think that's a good spot to move into talking about your book a little bit, because I feel I, I, I knew you from when I was working at the library and you would come in weekly to take out stacks and stacks of books for research <laughs> for this project and all the other things that you were working on as well. So I, I knew you in that patron library staff kind of way, but reading your book, I really felt... Like, I was getting to know, like, I already knew you in a way because of that church upbringing. I also grew up in the Reformed tradition, the Christian Reformed side of things, so not quite as conservative. You had it easy. St- yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I was Canadian Reformed. You were Canadian to, to Reformed, yeah To most people, yes. that sounds very, that like, there's no difference, but there actually is, Christian reforms a bit more liberal.
0: It was, it is, yes. And and I, I some of those strict theological tenets are very familiar to me. Um, so I I feel like I got to know you through the book even that much more. There's a there's a quote from page twelve that really leapt out for leapt out at me when I was sort of reacquainting myself with the book for today. Um, True believers did not ask questions. That was my church upbringing in a nutshell.
2: You must have faith like a child.
0: Faith like a ch- which whatever that means, mm-hmm. right? And 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 Obey. lots of ways mm-hmm. to try and interpret that, but not easy, you know. For a child to imagine, I'm supposed to have a faith like, faith like a child, faith like a child, right? Mm-hmm. Now, I, I'm going to do a little, get Dave to in, in on this too, because um, not only have I read and loved this book, but we have a new convert here, mm. so to speak. Yes. Yes. And I would venture to say that maybe even Dave feels like he knows you a little bit.
1: It's funny you were saying that, because when you were relating how you understood each other through religious experiences, um, I felt like I knew you through your... Uh, year-long experiences in some way especially the more um, experimental ones like I felt like I really I really understood I was like this is somebody I want to this is somebody I want to hang out with this is somebody I want to talk to you know it was well it here was she is. such a and, yeah hooray
2: <laughs> well this is wonderful because I have to say my primary audience is middle-aged women and so to be interviewed by two men who like my book is is really quite delightful
1: I feel like I like I said I feel like I I know you maybe even love you a little bit like it's Aww. just it was just so well done um, why do you, did you feel like you had to change and do I need to change as well? Why do you think I need to change?
2: Why do I think you need to change? Yes. I don't know you, Dave. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's an interesting way to phrase that question though. Like it, it's almost like you're projecting through the book a little bit, so reaching out towards Dave and he's, he's feeling that, that wow. that's what you were doing. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Do you feel you need to
2: change? Oh, I'll,
1: <laughs> I'll bet you the people <laughs> close to me probably feel that way. In yeah. what
2: way? Um,
1: I'm not sure. Maybe I'm I'd probably my more spiritual side as well, because I, how do I say this, uh, without being laughed out of the room? Like I have questions, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. um, I, I mostly believe, but I still have, you know, maybe not. I have maybe those thoughts, right. right?
2: Were you brought up in a religious tradition?
1: I was until my parents split up. Um, my dad, um, <laughs> my dad was actually kicked out of his church because heaven forfend, uh, they, um, he went to bat for a woman minister. Like, I guess in the uh, mid-70s, that wasn't even a thing.
2: Mm -hmm. I'm
0: not sure. Well, that's something that we really wrestled with in uh, the church that I grew up with as well. In fact, they're still wrestling with it. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. That that would
2: not have happened and is still not happening in the church I grew up in. That's you know? crazy. Um, yeah, in terms of believing, I mean, I have to clarify. I, I was brought up, you know, for listeners, I was brought up in a Dutch Reformed church, very strict. Uh, my entire life revolved around the church. You know, we went to church twice every Sunday, catechisms on Wednesday, young peoples. I was not encouraged to mix with Canadians, which was equivalent of heathens. Wow. Um, and, you know, my parents were good people. My mother and my stepfather were good people, Um But, you know, by the time I went to college and started meeting people from outside my faith, um, the scales sort of fell from my eyes, and I saw things much differently. And they had a very difficult time accepting that. And eventually I I left the church when I was 19. I became united. I tried the Presbyterians. And 15, 18 years ago, I became a Unitarian, which has been just a great gift in my life. And I, I have to say I am I define myself as a spiritual agnostic. I, I don't believe in the traditional idea of God and heaven and, or any of that. In fact, I think I'm starting to think reincarnation makes more sense. <laughs> I am dating someone who's South Asian now, so maybe that's had an influence, but um but I do think that like, we are spiritual beings and so how do we experience that outside the confines of a traditional church or or synagogue or mosque or whatever. Um, And so many people are leaving traditional religion, but what are we replacing it with?
0: Well, you use uh, the the acronym in your book, SBNR, so spiritual but not religious. Um, It's a frightening term to people who hold on to one particular brand of faith, so tightly. It challenges that. It rejects what you were talking about in terms of having that upbringing that says, this is the way, this is your spirituality, this is what that means. Spiritual but not religious, it, it rejects it in a way, it separates from, from that upbringing as well. Uh, why is that acronym or that, that term, spiritual but not religious, so problematic?
2: Well, to me, it makes a lot of sense. I think there's something like uh, when I wrote my book uh, four years ago, 80 million North Americans, according to surveys by Pew and Angus Reid, define themselves as spiritual not but not religious. I th- also think people can be religious, not spiritual. It's true. Yeah, um, true. You know, and studies show that a lot of people, and, and I include myself in this group when I was going to the United Church, it is such a sense of belonging to be in a faith community, to be known every Sunday, to be seen Um, If you're in trouble, if you're sick, you know, there's a community behind you. You don't get that when you're part of a bowling league or a book club, right? Not in the same way. And I do think that some people continue to go to uh, religious institutions because of that comfort of being known, even though they don't buy the dogma. I would argue that many Catholics, for example, and I know many of them, uh, don't believe in, um, you know, that birth control is a mortal sin or all these other things, but they still define themselves as Catholic and want to be part of that community. So it's a very strong urge in human nature to want to belong. I would say it's the strongest urge. That's why we create families. That's why we have bands of friends. That's why we join groups. And that's why we're part of religious organizations. And that's
0: why even the most introverted among us feel a sense of of peace and belonging when we're with people who are like us as well. Even though we don't get energy from being with people, Mm -hmm. suddenly we're getting energy from being with people like us. And I think church can really play a role like that as well, even if people can't articulate it, right? Like, I go to church every Sunday because that's what I've done my whole life. Could be something that gets said, but less frequent would be that sense of, well, I can separate a lot of things and I'm going to identify that the main reason I'm going to church is that community. I think that's rare.
2: Yeah. I mean, and, and this is why I'm a Unitarian is I, I feel like, you know, there are some Unitarians who might believe in God. I would say the majority don't believe in that traditional idea but you know, one of the principles of Unitarianism is that we are all free to discover our own search for truth and meaning. Um, of course, we do have principles that we abide by, but it's different for everybody, I think, and it it can't be prescriptive. So, and this is why, when getting back to the theme of rejection, you know, this this urge, this this desire to belong, when it's when we are rejected in a religious context, whether it's excommunication shunning disfellowshipping it's all the same right we're told if you don't believe and you don't want to be part of us we're not going to have anything to do with you don't
0: ask any of those questions you're not supposed to ask otherwise dot dot dot
2: right Mm. and it is traumatic for many people um to to face that kind of thing excommunication it's the worst thing that can happen to somebody and for me i was threatened with excommunication but i I just withdrew my membership, and I I didn't miss the church at all, but unfortunately, my family, who were true believers and strong members of that community, they were devastated that I left, and we were estranged for a decade because of it, and, you know, I felt rejected by them, but I would argue, you know, I was thinking they felt rejected by me because I rejected their beliefs. I still love them, but I didn't agree with their beliefs. So, it caused a lot of pain. I would say religious trauma, you know there is such a thing as religious trauma where often people from very fundamentalist faith groups and it can be christian um, jewish um, uh, you know all religions have a fundamentalist sect or
0: arm right I wonder if um one of the things that again, when I went back into the book itself i'm so curious about the post-book reality? Has the book of the story of you rejecting that fundamentalist mindset, the fundamentalist mindset rejecting you back, has it opened any doors for people who are still affiliated with, the, in your case, the Canadian Reformed Church, to, to to speak more, you know, and in what way?
2: That's a great question. Um, well, first of all, you know, it was just such a amazing experience to write this book. It's hard, as you know, Brent, as a writer, you wonder, you toil by yourself and you wonder if your words are going to have any impact. There's so much self-doubt, right? So true. But you do it anyway. And this was a story that I felt needed to be told. And it's really two stories for those who haven't read the book. It is the story of my moving away from fundamentalism, the estrangement with my family, and finding a new kind of spirituality. And it is also the story of 24 different spiritual practices I engaged in over the course of a year to see what would stick, what else was out there, what could I experience. And I did everything from, um, you know, Reiki and all these alternative practices. I had my chakras balanced. I opened
0: the book to goat yoga. When I read it, <laughs> I opened the book to the photo with the goat. Oh, yeah. Go yoga. You know,
2: that was fun and lighthearted. But I I did some more profound things. I Mm -hmm. went on a Mm -hmm. pilgrimage to Henry David Thoreau's Walden Pond, and I visited the town of the Transcendentalists, who I feel were the first espionaries, you know, in the late 1800s. They believed that uh, Emerson said, make your own Bible. You know, they believed God was in nature, not in the pew. And uh, they were really revolutionaries of their time. And I swam in Walden Pond. It was, it was a very spiritual experience. I did magic mushrooms for the first time, which everybody always asked me about. It was an incredible experience. I had a death dinner. I sort of planned my own funeral. I experimented with solitude by going to a, a tree house and just being totally alone. Um, forest bathing, joining choirs. You know, I did all these mm-hmm. practices. Mm-hmm. So that's, that is what my book, it's about those two things. And it was so remarkable when it came out that it got some good reviews, and that people found me. People found me. I have a website, com, and people wrote to me, people from the Reformed tradition, people from the Baptist tradition, and I would say Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. Those two religions are, to my mind, very extreme and very cruel if you leave. You are shunned big time.
0: Yeah, we think of the Mennonites, but it's a Mm -hmm. big tent. And there are modern Mennonites who
2: don't do that sort of thing. But I had a lot of people reach out to me for help. I met with people for coffee. I talked about my journey. And what I recommend for people is um, Marlene Winnell, Dr. Marlene Winnell in San Francisco, is the leading psychologist on religious trauma syndrome. I actually went to one of her retreats in San Francisco, which was very healing. And she has, um, she offers therapy, she offers groups and retreats, and she has a guidebook, which is only $12, called A Guide for Former Fundamentalists Leaving the Faith. Mm-hmm. And it helps you through leaving. The biggest thing for people is their families. They don't miss the religious institution. They miss their families who often reject and them. And is that
0: one of the main narratives you would hear from people who reached out afterwards? It's,
2: what do I do about my family? What do I do about my family? What do I do? They tell right. me I'm going to hell. My family told me that too. I'm going to hell. Um, they, uh, Your children are going to hell. What, what? How are you bringing up your children? We won't see you. You can't come home for Christmas. Uh, or they are barely tolerated. Like, How do you negotiate those family relationships? That's the hard part.
1: And I don't wish to give away um, anything from the book. I mean, I, I loved it. Everybody should read it. I absolutely adored it. But uh, can you describe to me what the scariest, um, I'll say, I'll use my finger quotes, leap that you made during your, your discovering spirituality year?
2: The leap. I made quite a few leaps. Um, one thing I realized was that ritual um, is important in our lives. It's why people pray or light a candle or or do a gratitude practice. These are all small things, but I really incorporated them in my life. And I would say the one thing that stuck the most is gratitude practice. Um, it's so easy to look at things that aren't going well in our lives. We all have challenges and troubles and depressions and anxieties, especially since COVID. Mental health rates have skyrocketed, and I'm not saying if you're grateful you won't have depression. That's that's not accurate. <laughs> yeah. But uh, you know what we focus on, what we look for—that's positive in our lives—can can really be a great practice to have. And there is so much to be thankful for. And I did download a gratitude app on my phone, which keeps a running tally of all the things over the last four years. And I can look at it and find thousands of things. Sometimes just the bird song at my window or a beautiful conversation with one of my grown daughters, um, and I just had a lot of fun that year, yeah. you know, it yeah, was, yeah. it was you like really a, a midlife, you know, there were things going on in my life that were difficult. My marriage was coming to an end and, uh, you know, it, it was hard, but I just, um, went out and explored this other realm. Like what are magic mushrooms? What is a trip? Like, are there answers out there? Uh-huh. Um, what is it like to be completely by myself for three days with no company and just staring at bugs in the water? You know <laughs> what? Um, so many, so many things. I did the death dinners I did with my friends that were so meaningful, where we talked about people who, close to us who have died. I mean, I went to Lilydale and talked to psychics. I don't really believe in all that stuff, but there was one psychic who knew a lot about my life that I don't know, understand how she could have possibly known it. So it was a great way. It was. I was fifty-six that year. It was a great kind of. Midlife adventure to try all of these things and to Mm -hmm. write about them. You know, I had a blog and the blog turned into a book. And it was a great, um, a great delving into it kind of into the unknown. I'm really
1: happy to hear you say gratitude because I just turned 50 this year. I know, I know. I must look much younger, but <laughs> but I just turned fifty this year, and I used to hate the sound of my alarm going off. But now it's like I hear my alarm, and I go yes. Yeah, you, you know slept until I
0: mean? eight this morning, and I <laughs> joked about that. I was it. I, we may have been recording or not, but that is not the norm. You have been up early, walking, just mm-hmm. jumping into
2: things lately. Absolutely. Yeah. And so when you say yes, because you're still alive. Yes, exactly. I mean, yeah. yeah. So grateful, I turned sixty my- last year. I mean, I'm approaching my. Seventh decade in nine years, which to me is just baffling because... I mean, how old do you feel inside? How did we get here? <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, but, you know, the thing, too, is I, I lost um, some friends. I had a dear friend who who died, uh, actually, in a tragic—she uh, was hit by a truck. She was an animal rights protester. She was a beautiful person. And I tell you, when you think about uh, the people who are dying, you know, people our age, 50, 60, we start to lose our parents. Mm-hmm. Um, we become so aware that life is finite. We know this but we are all going to die. So how are we going to live? What are we going to believe in? Uh, What are we going to do to make our life meaningful? Mm -hmm. And I think um, spirituality is um, worth exploring. For me, going to church still, I'm a Unitarian. It's, to me, the only church where I can go with a good conscience and feel completely at home. And I do like the ritual of Sunday services. I like the ritual of a message of having my phone off for an hour, of listening to beautiful music, of connecting with people that I know. I think there's a lot of beauty in going to religious services as long as you don't have to buy stuff that you don't believe or that you're made to feel bad because you don't believe it. Right, right.
0: At the end of this, I mean, I would never have known, um, as the library staff member checking books out to you, getting updates about the interesting things that you were doing, reading your blog. The idea that the difficulties in your life at the same time were demanding some of your attention as well. Did those things sort of reinforce that you needed, for lack of a better term, uh, look in, inwards, and, and take care of yourself as well?
2: Yeah, I would say so. I mean, obviously, there was a reason I embarked on this journey, because I was looking for answers, big answers. One was my marriage. And the other was I'd been estranged from my mother, especially who I'd been so close to when I was young. Was I going to live the rest of my life this way? Was there some way to reconcile with her? I mean, I had tried... Um, and I it was hurting me, you know, it was causing me anguish and I needed to figure out these two relationships in my life. And it's interesting we talk about looking inward because I believe that traditional religion is about looking outward to a god, a guru, a holy book, looking outside for the answers. And of course there are lots of wise people throughout history who have answers for us. Mm-hmm. Spirituality to me is about going within and finding the answers within yourself, listening to your own inner voice, trusting your own inner spirit, if, if, if I can say that word. Um, so, yeah, it's about going within. And how often do we really take the time to do that? Our lives are so busy and packed and we brag about how much is on our plate. And now with social media, we're ne- we don't even allow ourselves to be bored. Mm-hmm. You know, we used to daydream. Mm-hmm. Now, if you've got a minute in the grocery store line or at the doctor's office, well, you're on your phone. You don't have, we don't have that expansive boredom that can lead to creativity or really knowing ourselves. So um, writing this book was an exercise in allowing myself to take all these journeys.
0: And and one of the things about taking care of yourself, uh, you mentioned the relationship a couple of times now, the relationship that you had and have with your mother when I first started thinking about the questions we could and things we could talk about tonight, we interviewed a friend of mine, Kelly Thompson, who's a writer who has written incredible memoirs, two books that I can't recommend highly enough. But it's really interesting that when we were talking to Kelly and we focused on her work as a feminist writer and, and her as a veteran and, and all of these things, that when I pulled your book back off the shelf, I said, I, I need to dig back into this book one of the first things that popped out at me was, and I, and I mentioned your mother very intentionally because it was the idea that the expectation, and I think this has a lot to do with how you were raised at home, that women in particular are expected to put everyone else first before themselves. Mm-hmm. And I remember sort of seeing that in your book and, and, and the connection, and I was thinking about feminism and kelly and podcast and you and that just really spoke to me and that's so true and and that's also partly why i was thinking well that that had to send herself back into herself to take care of herself and yourself right like
2: yeah i have so much i could say about that it's not just (laughs) religious homes where women are taught to put others first it's the world in general um, you know, um, a selfless woman is, is honored in our society and, um, a woman who takes up space, who sometimes puts herself first, you know, that's not always, um, seen as a good thing by no, some not people. No, not that taking
0: care of ourselves is bad, of course, but, right. but, but that can be portrayed as saying, in this case, not now, yeah, not this time.
2: I use a quote in my book from Erica Jong, the writer Erica Jong, who talks about how guilty women feel all the time because... There's always more they could be doing for their families, for their kids, for their work. And, um, you know, she says, uh, show me, what does she say? Show me a woman who doesn't feel guilty and I'll show you a man, (laughs) which I think is pretty funny. I will say that even though I was brought up in a very traditional religion where in church the message was the man is the head of the household, In my church, women could not preach. They could not even vote in the elders. The women had to leave the church, go sit in the car after church while the men voted in the elders. It was ridiculous. However, I come from a line of strong women. My mother and my grandmother, you know, they had equal marriages with their partners. They had a voice. They were not, you know, they might have said the man's ahead of the household, but they did not act that way. So I had good role models in that regard.
0: I wonder you know, the things we say in order to pass in our environments, whether it's church or work or whatever, hearing the the repetition of that uh, that, that that theology, that dogma of, well yes, men are the head of the household, but wondering if the meaning is there. And wondering if it's meant when it's said that, you know, like the things we say, but maybe don't mean. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And, you know, when I when I went when I left the church, I mean, I was hounded by the elders. I stopped going. And uh, in that church, you are expected to, you know, you're they don't just leave you alone. They called me. They came to my apartment. They wrote me a letter that said I was going to hell. Um, and I eventually did go and meet with the minister at the time in Hamilton and uh, told him why I was leaving. And, and I had become a feminist. I was 20 years old. I was exposed to feminist thought. My world view changed. And I said to him, you know, you don't allow women to preach or vote in elders or have a role. And he, of course, pointed to some Bible verse and in the book of in Paul, who said women shall not speak in church. And, and that indeed is in the Bible, as are many other things in the Bible, mm. that you shouldn't wear a garment mixed of fibers, or you shouldn't eat a goat or whatever, these these old rules. But, you know, they sort of pick and choose what worked for them. And that was the problem I had with it.
0: Well, and I think that's a pretty common questioning thing nowadays, too. And one of, one of The joys that I've had in rediscovering religious literature is digging into literature that says, when we look at scripture, for example, when we look at any wisdom literature, we can't, as you say, pick and choose, that even if one thing says one thing, A, often things have a contrasting or completely opposite passage elsewhere in that wisdom literature. But B, there's always a balance, too. Like, we always have to try and find the bigger picture. Um, we, we can't just, you know, just because Paul said, I won't allow mm-hmm. a woman to speak over me in church, for example, or, you know, in elsewhere in the Bible where it says a menstruating woman shouldn't be part of the congregation, recognizing that those things were said as part of a context. And we need to discern now as Exactly, Faith people as people of gender, of color, of everything saying, I think we need to talk about that. We need to think about that again.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome.
1: So uh, what personality traits did you discover about yourself uh, during the year that may have surprised you a little?
2: Well, these are good questions. No one has ever asked me that question before. <laughs> I told you, Dave was really excited. <laughs> I, I loved that. He was <laughs> I the first the book, one to put yeah. questions
0: down in the doc here. So Well, I, personality
2: traits. Yeah. Well, I am an extreme extrovert. I thrive being around people. I get my energy from being with people, and yet I have this curious life as a solo writer by myself at home. Um, although I do connect with lots of people, I run memoir writing workshops, and I do have a part-time communications job, so I, I do meet with people. But. Um, I discovered that, and this was partly the solitude exercise I did where I went and lived in a tree house and where I spent nine months essentially alone writing this book. Mm -hmm. I I wrote in different friends' houses. I gave up all most of my social engagements. My publisher gave me a deadline. I had to get it done. I had Mm -hmm. to write 10,000 words a month to get this book done. And I discovered, you know, my own company was not as bad as maybe I previously thought. And um, I think there's a real strength in liking your own company. And I got to like it a bit better. Not always, but I was okay being alone. And of course, eventually I had to get separated too. I was always kind of afraid to be alone, to be without a partner. Um, And I think that muscle got strengthened during this process. I was more resilient and stronger in some ways than I thought.
1: And being alone in, in itself is a very powerful thing. Like, I always admire people who can, like, eat dinner alone. You know, like, they can go to a nice restaurant, they can eat dinner alone or go oh, to a movie alone. Oh, my favorite alone. thing. Oh, I love it.
0: I love it so, so much. Well, going especially to a when movie. you have young
2: children and you, need, you,
0: know, you love them. <laughs> well, that's true. You yeah, love okay. them, but you, you want to have grown-up well. time. <laughs> that, well, this was something that I did. I've, I've done for a long time. I, I've never had a problem sitting in a movie theater by myself, getting one ticket. Like you get the looks, of you course. know, I'll just have one. When, when you actually had to go to the ticket back I'm counter, I'm comfortable
2: of doing that as well. Now <laughs> I can
0: do it on my app and just be completely, you know. For younger
1: yeah. people who have never heard of such a thing. Uh, so. Ticket counter. What is We're that? still
2: afraid, right, of being perceived as a loser. If yeah. we have yeah. a meal by ourselves or go to a movie theater, it's like, oh, they have no friends? No, yeah. sometimes you just want to take in the experience and not have the chatter that goes with it and just, mm-hmm. just enjoy it and enjoy your own company. And your own thoughts, you know, the
0: daydreaming, like you said exactly. earlier. Exactly.
2: And, you know, um, for so many women, especially, and I do write about this in, in my book, um we're so guilty, and men do it too. But I think women do it. Studies show women do it far more. Is that the thoughts in our head can be an asshole? Um, <laughs> you know, we can be very critical of ourselves, and that is not healthy. And I was reading. Um, Matt Haig has a book, How, How to Live. It's about his depression. I yeah. can't remember the exact title. I love his fiction and beautiful writer. He
0: just has a really nice way of framing and he was everything. He right?
2: was suicidal, and he talks about depression being those bad thoughts in your head. It's self-inflicted. So Sometimes it's you need help, you need therapy or medication. But I think affirmations, as corny as they sound, um, are really good to forgive ourselves when we make a mistake, to speak to ourselves as we would a friend. I've been practicing that since doing this book because I can be perfectionistic and hard on myself Mm -hmm. um, and didn't always like myself. I have to admit it. And so I've been actively working against that. and, And it does work. That's amazing. Wow. And I think that not liking ourselves sometimes stems from growing up in a religion where mm-hmm. we're told we're a sinner, um, we are never good enough, um, we don't measure up. I mean, these are messages I got and millions of people get week after week when they, when they go to church or to religious institution. And a lot of it is negative reinforcement. Being a Unitarian, I feel um, much more expansive that the possibilities – Uh, for achievement and love and connection are endless. It's not about sinning. It's not about hell. It's not about how bad you are.
0: Can I ask you a question? Um, True confession. Before I knew you, I had seen the Unitarian Church as I drove by or biked by on my way to the library, but I had no idea. It was just another church to me. Um, Can I ask you, for people in that Community, I can only imagine that it reflects the society at large. So there's got to be some people who are kind of like me in terms of, like I admitted in my introduction, that when we talk about the woo-woo, it makes us uncomfortable. How do you, when you encounter people in such a um, an environment that you have basically fled from the closed-mindedness around us, how do you respond to people in that environment who might not have an open mind about the kinds of things that you're talking about?
2: Well, uh, first of all, I do want to say something about woo woo. I kind of regret that as a subhead because that word is so loaded. Um, It
0: is. And there's been since you published the book as well. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I'm not happy that that is the subhead in my book. Woo woo is used as a dismissive term. So Mm -hmm. I was trying to reclaim it. So people will say, you do Reiki, that's so woo woo. Mm -hmm. Or you Mm -hmm. believe in reincarnation or, uh, you know, Pagan rituals or uh, chakra balancing, that's so woo-woo. Well, the thing is, a lot of these practices go back thousands of years. There's nothing new about them, and they've often been practiced by women. So woo-woo is a very dismissive term for these kinds of practices that can bring people some sort of healing. Things like the virgin birth or the concept of a burning pit of hell, that's not woo-woo, (laughs) <laughs> I mean That's fair Let's look Absolutely. at the judgment here Right yep. Absolutely So Absolutely. I think a lot of uh, When we use woo-woo It's often traditions That women have been involved in um, That
0: is also true And I had never really framed it In my own mind that way But that's mm-hmm. Yeah That's
1: really mm-hmm. interesting to say that You
2: know And at the Unitarians It's a very uh, It is a very re- Religious structure There's a sermon There's uh, offering There's beautiful music It's not like there's uh, Everyone's going there Mushrooms Not at all uh, Not at all <laughs> (laughs) Um, But I would say it's a very open-minded community, and there's a lot of refugees from other religions. Very few people I know have been raised Unitarian. Most of them grew up in a church religious environment, and they like the community of church, but they don't like everything that goes along with it. So um, it's very LGBTQ friendly. They have an intensive sex education program for children and young adults, which my kids benefited from greatly. Because this is a part of ourselves that we don't get good information. Uh, most people learn about sex and porn, which is terrible. It's done in a spiritual environment there, which I know sounds odd, but it's it's really um, a beautiful program called Our Whole Lives. Um, so I haven't encountered close-mindedness there, really, really. Um, Unitarians are a unique group, you know, because not everyone believes exactly the same. There can sometimes be conflict just like in any congregation. Well, I was going to say, is
0: it even more, is it a more safe place to have conflict as a result?
2: I would say so. Okay. I would say so. You know, for Unitarians, and I, and I do write about Unitarianism about four pages in my book because it was so important in my life. And I too drove by that church and had no idea what it was. Hmm. But I'll tell you, the moment I walked in, uh, local singer Jude Johnson was singing John Lennon's Imagine and I, Mm. you know, singing about Imagine There's No Heaven or No Hell Below Us. And I thought, I'm home. And I felt home from the day I walked in there. And it's been just a beautiful place for me and my family.
1: Mm. That's great. Amazing. So uh, tell me, uh, which, uh, which ritual did you enjoy the most?
2: well I have to say I, we talked about gratitude um, that is something that I've really kept the one for me that was the most surprising was the magic mushrooms I had never done drugs maybe I smoked pot a few times in my 20s it never did anything for me mm-hmm. I did a very heavy dose under a nurse's supervision it lasted six hours it was it was indeed mind-blowing I felt a lot of answers came to me about my parents for one thing I sort of envision them behind bars and I was trying to reach my arms through the bars to reach them to bring them closer to me Um, and it was hard to do and I kind of came to an acceptance of that that that's just where they were at and I Mm -hmm. couldn't force things. Um, My children were late teens at the time I had some insights around them Um, It was a really beautiful experience, very safe. I did it very, very safely. Uh, My one daughter was quite against it. My other daughter was like, go for it, which (laughs) led me to believe she'd done magic mushrooms too. Um, Visiting the uh, Concord, Massachusetts, where the, um, uh, the transcendentalist history was absolutely fascinating. Uh, these people were doing all this kind of stuff 150 years earlier, Mm -hmm. trying to find meaning outside of the traditional confines of religion and and indeed finding it in philosophy and um, in in nature and in each other. That was a really beautiful experience too. But I would say every single thing I did, I got something out of everything, except maybe the past life regression session. (laughs) I didn't feel like I went to any past lives, but even the session I had with the practitioner speaking to her about my life after – Ended up being meaningful. You know, I think any Well, it's interesting
0: at the beginning of the podcast episode, you did mention, you're like, well, maybe I I lend myself more to reincarnation.
2: Well, I studied it a bit. I mean, you know, a billion people believe in reincarnation. And, Mm -hmm. and, Mm -hmm. you know, as Christians, people were brought up Christian. We don't know anything about that. Uh, What makes more sense? That there's a man in heaven who's going to divide people and put them on a cloud or in a fiery pit? Or maybe that when we die... We come back in some other shape or form. I have no idea what happens after we die. (laughs) It's all conjecture, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, um, reincarnation, maybe. Who knows? You know, I I say too, you know, people think, what happens after we die? That's to me a lot of reason why people believe in religion and why religion was created because the thought of death is just so, you know, losing our child or our friend or our Mm -hmm. parent, knowing that we're going to die, it's so impossible. After,
0: but we need to be reassured that something is after. Yes,
2: and religion is very reassuring, and I've certainly seen that with my mother. You know, my stepfather died five years ago. They had a beautiful marriage. She is comforted by the fact that she believes he's in heaven, and she'll go there too. And mm. it is a great comfort. And I understand that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what happens after we die. I feel let's make the best of the life we do have. Well, it sounds and like let's you can hope un- for the best.
0: Well, and it sounds like you can understand it. Not just from a religious standpoint, but now you've begun to appreciate that from a human standpoint just the idea that yes, it is comforting to know or to imagine that there is something afterwards that's
1: meaningful right I can I can attest to that my uh, when my father passed uh, ten years ago I asked him if he was afraid like it was one of our last conversations together I asked him if he was afraid he says, no no, I know what's no no, I know what's gonna happen yeah am I'm, I'm, I'm fine yeah you know I and I mean, that was did, did he
0: would he have did he tell you what he was thinking was going to happen or did you just kind of, kind of assume based on his,
1: just, I assumed just based on, he was smiling. Like he wasn't afraid at that point. Like he, like he, he was going to be any day now. Right. And I knew he wasn't afraid and that's, that brought him comfort. So huh. I, that gave me comfort as well. It made like when he eventually passed, it made it a lot easier for me as well, knowing that he was happy to be going where mm-hmm. he was going. Mm-hmm. Right? right. Instead of scared out of his mind. Right.
0: Can I go to the opposite side? Can I ask you which uh, of your experiences in leading up to, I guess, writing your blog through the year uh, was your least favorite? Um, And or, and maybe as a bonus for the podcast, was there anything that didn't make it into the book or onto your blog?
2: Yeah, there were some other things I wanted to do that I didn't get around to doing. I wanted to Although I went on a silent retreat by myself in this treehouse, I I wanted to see if I could shut up for seven days and do a silent meditation (laughs) retreat. It would be very hard for me. Um, So that was one thing that I wanted to do. Um, I was very interested in music therapy and sound therapy. I mean, if you look up religious spiritual practices, I was interested in ayahuasca, um, although with that one, there's a lot of vomiting, and (laughs) and I didn't want to do that. Interesting. You know, I am I am very curious about about other practices, you know, and um, speaking to people from other faith groups. I did do a, a whole week of religious education. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of the organization so I could plug them. I wrote about it on my, it's on my website. And I went to a mosque and I went to a synagogue and I went to a Hindu temple and hmm. um, really tried to learn about other religions because... Even though I was brought up extremely religious and taught about religion, I never learned about anybody else's religion. Right. Mm. I am very much for comparative religion, and we should understand what other religions are about. And we see many similarities. We see virgin births in other religions. Um, The rituals of the seasons are common. You know, there's a lot of uh, similarities. We're going to
0: have in some future episode our pastor from Kuwait, when my wife and I were living in Kuwait, Reverend Andy Thompson. And his whole thing... He's an Anglican pastor, does magic um, in in <laughs> church, uh, but he he's now a canon reverend. He's very he's, he's he's kind of gotten much higher in in the hierarchy of the Anglican Church. But his his passion is still interfaith dialogue. So we're we're actually going to have him on, and he is all about that. He says we need to know exactly what other because people otherwise people become
2: feel. the other. Something mm-hmm. to be afraid of, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the more understanding we have of other religions, I think, I think the better. You asked me about favorites. Um, one thing that was really illuminating is I spent a week at a witch camp uh, in Ontario, a pagan camp, and um, I kind of went undercover. And uh, you know, I'm not really pagan, although after the week, I'd say I became a bit more pagan. <laughs> and these were fifty women, mostly middle-aged, nurses, teachers. Uh, very earth centered, had beautiful rituals and poems, and a bonfire at night, and we danced together. You know, it really turned my idea of witches upside down. And again, in in our mythology, you know, Shakespeare's witches and hags, and this negative idea we have of witches. When really, the ones I met are trying to be a force of good in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's a pretty sexist notion as well. And you know, and the Middle Ages
0: were not kind no. to our perception.
2: Right. I mean but it. even things in popular culture like bewitched or, you know, being sort of lighthearted about it. I mean, these mm. are earnest people who are really worried about our planet and and trying to make positive difference in their communities. It's interesting that paganism is now a faster growing religion than Presby- uh, Presbyterianism. Oh, wow. Uh, how interesting. And I think a lot of that is because of climate, uh, the climate emergency and people realizing like, what, how are we taking care of the earth? And uh, I mean, if that isn't a spiritual practice, I don't know what it is.
0: Can I point you back to the least favorite?
2: Yeah, the least favorite, I think I did refer to it earlier, would be probably the past life regression session because it's a form of hypnosis. Oh, I see. And the practitioner is very highly regarded. There was a CBC documentary about her. She's, like I say, very highly regarded. But I feel like she kind of planted a story or that I was trying to please her when she was hypnotizing me and saying, okay, where are you now? And look down at your feet. And I'm like, I'm barefoot. And I wasn't sure if it was really true or if I was just kind of responding to her cues um, and I didn't really buy it I didn't really buy it
0: let's go back to uh, you, you mentioned there's something you'd like to share about your mother
2: yeah, you a were follow up asking,
0: to an earlier question that didn't get that last little bit you wanted to add.
2: That's right. You were asking me about the impact of the book. You know, when I wrote this book, I, I did show my parents, um, you know, the difficulties where they felt I was going to hell and their disappointment in me. I also showed the beauty of how I was raised by a very strong single mother who was who was loving. Um, and after the book, I felt I had to show it to her because she figured so prominently in it. And I was very afraid because I thought she would never speak to me again. Um, we were already estranged, and I didn't think this would help. But you know what? I gave it to her. My stepfather had died. I gave her the book. She stayed up all night and read it. She called me in the morning, has never really said if she likes it or dislikes it, corrected a couple of facts, and she was okay with it. Mom. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I went to my stepfather's funeral, and the minister there pulled me aside, and I thought, here we go. He's oh, going to try wow. to— But you know what he said to me was, be good to your mother. And I thought, yeah, I need to be, I need to, I need to make the first move here. So I started visiting her and within about six months after regular visits, we, we came to a reconciliation. We talked about what happened and we have a beautiful relationship now. And I see her regularly. I tell her I love her all the time. Mm -hmm. I asked for forgiveness and she did too in her own way. And, uh, we don't fight about it anymore. And, it's the best thing that could have happened, and I, it was a complete surprise. You know, we write about people in memoir, and we're so afraid what they might say and that they'll be angry, but if you write from a place of love, um, even though there's difficult things, you'd be surprised what how things could you know, happen, and it ended up being a very happy ending with her. So I'm really grateful for that.
0: Well, and it also ties into the earlier conversation about how your book has echoed, right, in terms of your own personal life, but also with other people as well. So I think that's a wonderful place to stop, and thank you so much for being here. It really, it's been such a joy. Uh, the anticipation has been mm-hmm. growing, isn't? Absolutely, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely, it has. So we're just really grateful that you're here. Thank well, you so much.
2: Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for the brilliant questions.
0: A massive thank you to Anne Buckma for being here and for sharing her wisdom and experiences with us.
1: Absolutely. A huge thank you. I enjoyed the book. As you know, Brent, uh, we talk about uh, how much I enjoyed this book offline. It actually took me about three tries because uh, the experiences were so strong. I I had to shelve it just for a day and then come back to it. It was a wonderful experience. Absolutely.
0: So make sure you pick up My Year of Living Spiritually wherever you buy books. Uh, Whether you buy it or get it at the library, just get it. It's worth a read. Anne's doing all sorts of other cool things. Check out her website where there's
1: more information about some of the things she's up to. We're always looking for rejection stories that push beyond the everyday. If you have a rejection story or idea for the show, reach out through RejectedCentral8 at gmail.com or social media or our podcast website, RejectedCentral.com.
0: And finally, none of this happens without all of you beautiful rejects. (laughs) Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.
1: Bye-bye.